Man, that, that Don and Alex story kills me. That sneaky reply all button. Because it's, it's, it's one thing to not do reply all when you should, but it's a whole nother thing if you accidentally hit reply all when you shouldn't. That gets you in a whole nother mess. We've all been there. Uh, hey, we're in Hebrews 4. Whoop. I'm going to give the camera guys a run for their money today. I'm a pacer. You got me? Hebrews 4 today, open up. When you're there, scream as loud as you can. Just kidding, don't do that. Uh, Hebrews 4, I know you heard it from Tamala. Uh, She read before we sang today. But some of you were late, we all saw you. We know who you are. Uh, I would love it if we could read just the first few verses together. Hebrews 4, let's start in verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Jesus is our great high priest. He's our great high priest. This term priest, where does it come from? It's a title. It's a role that we find all the way back towards the beginning of our Bibles in the book of Exodus. In Exodus, the time of Moses, as far as history goes, it'd be about 3,500 years ago. This is a term that is used to describe a role in the book of Exodus, but Hebrews is applying it to Jesus, the same Jesus that we just worshiped through songs right now. Using an old term to describe Jesus now, as our tagline for this Hebrew series would say, it is modern faith anchored in ancient truth. But Hebrews is doing uh, what it always does. This is kind of Hebrews shtick, is using old categories Uh, titles that would be familiar to an Old Testament reader, but not too familiar for our context today. And it applies them to Jesus, the Jesus that we worship now. And this this is a big thing that Hebrews is doing, and we need to realize what it's saying. It's saying that these categories, this framework of understanding Jesus, is the way we understand Jesus best. And that's what I need to hear, because as I'm going through Hebrews, and I run into a phrase like great high priest, the first thing I kind of think is, uh, okay, I don't understand that fully, so is there a different word we could put there? Can you boil it down for me? Is there some way that we could describe it different than great high priest? Because that's just not familiar to me. And so from what I know of a priest, it's kind of like a middleman, right? So how about as we're reading Hebrews, why don't we just read middleman instead of priest? Let's switch them all out. And we, we can do that. We can do that with a lot of things. Uh, we could say a prophet in the Old Testament is kind of like an ambassador nowadays, but instead of doing it on behalf of a country, it's on behalf of God. Uh, And we could say what sin, the situation that sin puts us in is like a spiritual credit card debt. Uh, And we could do that. And it's helpful at first, right? It helps us understand what might be going on. But Hebrews would say that we have already been given a framework in order to understand who Jesus is. Let me explain with a few scriptures. In in 2 Timothy, it says that God's called us and saved us, not because of our works, but according to his 
own purpose, his own purpose and his own grace. And it says, before the ages began, God called us and saved us before the ages began, before the beginning of time. And so this all hinges, this entire uh, perspective hinges on our belief in whether we believe that God was in complete sovereign control of all of history or not. Is our Old Testament intentionally written? Is the history, is, is God the author of our history or could Jesus have come at any time? Could Jesus have come in any context? Or is God in sovereign control of history? Daniel says that God's name is to be blessed because God is the one who changes times and seasons. And God is the one who sets up kings and removes kings. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings. He sets up kings. That sounds to me like the writing of history. And it sounds like what a lot of our Old Testament is actually about. And so try to see what I'm saying here. As the Old Testament history, as thousands of years of history is being developed, God, in fact, knows exactly when Jesus is going to come and live and die and resurrect. God has that in mind the entire time, essentially saying that he is, he is taking every facet of the Old Testament. He's taking every story, every character, every priest, every tabernacle, every, every uh, facet of what the Old Testament is, and he's building a framework in which to understand who Jesus is later. In other words, he's painting a backdrop for Jesus. We're given that in the Old Testament. Jesus actually says this about himself when he's talking to the Pharisees in John. And he's talking to the Pharisees and he says, you Pharisees search the scriptures, you search the Old Testament because you think in them you're gonna find eternal life. But what you're not realizing is that those scriptures, that Old Testament refers to me. It bears witness to me. Jesus is telling us point blank, the Old Testament is my backdrop. Jesus is saying you can look to any page in the Old Testament and it is pointing forward to him. And this is important to know as we go to Hebrews because Hebrews, that's what Hebrews does is it takes the framework that has already been built for us and shows us who Jesus is. And as much as we can use other terms and other phrases and things to start to help us understand, to get to the bottom of who Jesus is and to get to the real truth, the real beauty of what Jesus has done, we've been given categories in which to understand him. And this is what Hebrews has been doing. Remember in the first chapter of Hebrews, it says, Jesus is greater than the angels. And so Hebrews is basically saying, remember angels? Think about everything you know of them, the stories that involve them, all the context of what angels are. Jesus is like that, but he's so much greater. And in chapter three, Hebrews says, Jesus is greater than Moses. So think about Moses. Think about the stories of Moses and his character and his dialogues with God. Jesus is like that, but he's even greater And last week, Darren talked about the promised land and the rest that the people of Israel were looking for. Hebrews is saying, remember that promised land. Remember the rest that they were looking for. We're looking to the same thing, but it's so much greater. And now Hebrews is saying that Jesus is our high priest. So think about about a priest, everything that a priest does and all of its roles, what it was for. Jesus is like that, but so much greater. And that's what it delves into. And that's what chapter five starts to explain. But first, let me be honest with you guys. I'm having car trouble right now. Is anyone else in this room having car trouble right now? Can you relate to me? Uh, 
Right now I'm driving a 1998 Toyota Camry and it is on its last leg. It's, it's not going well, guys. Uh, it's gotten to the point where my Camry is, is overheating pretty much every time I drive it. Uh, and so what I've chosen to do is buy a gallon of coolant and keep it in my car constantly. And, you know, so every few days I'm having to refill the coolant, just burning through my coolant. Uh, and sometimes if I'm driving more than five minutes or so, I have to turn on the heat, crank up the heat so that the hot air can come out of the, the engine uh, and it works. It works. I am getting from point A to point B. I get to work and back and I can go to the store. I just can't buy anything frozen. Uh, but I crank up the heat and it keeps the temperature gauge pretty low. And so it's, it's working, but I'm sure you can kind of put yourself in my footsteps and, and uh, kind of realize as I'm heading down Imperial Highway on a day like yesterday, it's 95 degrees and the heat is blowing in my face. The sense comes over me that this can't be the best way to do it. Uh, there's got to be a better solution here. And you would probably say, just take it into a shop, Tim. But I, I'm scared to, because I know I'll find out that there is more than one thing wrong with it. You know, who knows? Who knows what's going to happen if I take it in? So for now, I've decided to crank the heat up. And that is a temporary fix to what is probably a very huge problem with my car. We need to realize that priests... And the sacrificial system of the Old Testament is a temporary fix to a huge problem. Very big problem. And they're temporary fix. Hebrews 5 kind of starts laying out what a priest's position was. So a priest is chosen from the nation of Israel to represent the people. He's a person to represent the people in relation to God. He represents them to God. How does he do this? He does it by offering Gifts and sacrifices for sins. And that's our problem. That's the huge problem. You see, Hebrews is, is laying out this whole format that there is, in fact, a God who is creator. And there are people who are creation. And rather than a healthy relationship between the two, in the middle is a gap. In the middle, there is a problem. There is something wrong. And it is a huge problem. There's been a brokenness. There's been a breach in the relationship between God and people to the degree where God appoints a priest and the priest has to do something involving sacrifices and a lot of blood and that fixes or allows the relationship to stay afloat even for a little bit in any way at all. And it really is just a little bit. When the priests make sacrifices in the Old Testament, it only lasts a little bit. It's a very temporary fix to the huge problem because every year they would make another sacrifice again. And so a human priest would be chosen and he's not even perfect. He is bogged down by sin himself. So first he's got to cleanse himself and he's got to take care of his own sin and then he can go represent the people. Once he goes to represent the people, he has to prepare a sacrifice. He has to... Uh, prepare it according to all the rules and regulations. He has to go at a specific time. He can't go whenever. He has to go to a specific place. He can't do this wherever. He has to go to a specific place called the tabernacle. And he, he goes into the tabernacle's first entryway. He has to go through curtain after curtain. He goes through a second entryway to a closer inner room and then another entryway into the very middle room where God's presence dwells and he can make a sacrifice. And after doing all this, he can finally sacrifice and receive mercy for the sins of his people for a little while. 
And then he's got to do it again. And then he's got to do it again. And as the sins continue, the sacrifices continue, and you realize this must be an endless cycle. And we can look at this whole process and realize this is insufficient. Are we going to do this forever? Just like how I have quite a sense of insufficiency as I have the heat blowing in my face on the road, we can have quite a sense of insufficiency when we see this whole sacrificial system and this priesthood. But it is getting the job done for now, right? It's keeping the relationship intact, but there must be a better solution. And Hebrews would tell us that in every insufficiency we can find in a priest of the Old Testament, Jesus fulfills it perfectly. And Jesus is the perfect high priest for us. One distinction of a priest was that he was appointed by God. That's what chapter 5 verse 4 says. No one can apply for this job. You can't earn it, but you have to be appointed by God. And Jesus was. And that's what the next couple of verses are explaining by those two quotes from the Psalms. And in the second one, you see that God is appointed as a priest forever in the order of someone called Melchizedek. And there's surprisingly few passages about Melchizedek in our Bible, but in chapter 7 of Hebrews, it's explained a lot more fully. So you'll have to stay around for chapter 7 to find out more about him. If you want to do your homework, read Genesis 14 before we get there. That's when we meet Melchizedek. But what you need to know is Melchizedek is part of a higher order than any other priest. And so just how Jesus is like the priest's but so much greater. He was appointed by God like every other priest, but in an even higher order. A priest in the Old Testament would live and serve as a priest, and then he would die, and then he'd have to get replaced by another priest. And that would happen over and over again. But Jesus lived and then died and then lived again and is still serving as our priest. And so it's not that we have no priests anymore. It's that we got one and we don't need another one. Chapter 7 of Hebrews would say Jesus became our priest on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. An Old Testament priest would have to pass through veil after veil to get to the one spot where, Jesus, where God's presence was. But Jesus is described in Hebrews 4, 14. It says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Not through the tabernacle to the Holy of Holies, to the heavens. And he has paved a way for us to have access to the presence of God anytime and anywhere, and he is still seated in eternal communion with God. In Old Testament, pre-sacrifice would only be temporary. And we look at that, and we see an animal sacrifice, and as much as it's keeping the relationship intact, it is temporary. But God can look at the sacrifice that Jesus made, and it is not the blood of an animal. It is the blood of his son, And it's the blood of someone who didn't have to make a sacrifice for himself first. But it is his perfect blood. And God can look at that blood and he says that is enough. That is in fact enough to cover all of it. To the point where you don't need another sacrifice again. It is done. It is paid for. And this is what we bank on as believers. This is what it's all about for us. That Jesus' blood is in fact enough to cover it all. And if we ever feel like that's not true, sometimes we might feel that 
the sin in our lives or the sin in the world outweighs the payment that Jesus made, we are ignoring the message of the gospel, the message of Hebrews, that Jesus, as our perfect sacrifice, paid it all. Chapter five, verse nine says, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. Another distinction of a priest is that the priest gets it. A priest has to get it. As in, as a representative of his people, you want that in a representative. You want someone who knows what it's like and can represent you well. You want someone who's been there. That's the best representative you can have. And Hebrews does not want us to miss that Jesus absolutely gets it. Jesus absolutely can represent us well. Andrew Murray says the garden of Gethsemane was the training ground where our great high priest learned his last and most difficult lesson of obedience. Jesus learned lessons of obedience. In Hebrews 5 verse 7 it says in the days of his flesh Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Have you ever had loud cries and tears? Jesus knows. We're told in every respect he knows. He's been tempted in every way we have. We need to choose to believe what it says in Hebrews 4.15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us and our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He knew. Jesus knew hunger and Jesus knew thirst when he fasted longer than any of us in this room have. Jesus knew tiredness. Jesus knew fear. And he knew stress when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus had questions he didn't know the answer to. Did you know that Jesus had questions he didn't know the answer to? Jesus knew betrayal when his close friend sold him for some money. Jesus knew the sadness of death and what it's like to lose a friend. And that's shown in the verse, Jesus wept. Jesus knew poverty. Jesus knew anger. Jesus knew what it was like to be in a dysfunctional family. In every respect, Jesus knows. And example after example, Jesus has been tempted in every respect, just like we are. Not only does he understand as much as us, but Jesus can sympathize with us even more than us. At the end of verse uh, 15, It says that he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. And sometimes we're tempted to read that as he can sympathize with us despite the fact that he didn't sin. But that is not at all what this passage in Hebrews is saying. It is saying he can sympathize with us, especially because he didn't sin. In fact, that qualifies him even more to sympathize with us. C.S. Lewis says it this way. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. And that is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. 
And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation really means. And he calls him the only complete realist. Jesus gets it. And he gets it, and he's the one that can actually offer us the most grace, more than anyone. And sometimes it feels like, for me to find grace, I think the only person that can cut me slack is someone that's worse than me. Someone that is, uh, at least has done the same sin as me, right? We think the people who will, who will be most gracious to us are those that are sinners, but this is just not true. Scripture would tell us that it's the righteous who give grace, not the sinners, Jesus is the one you want in your corner. Do you remember King David when he's approached by Nathan the prophet and he's told a story about a different man who stole and abused people? And what was David's reaction? He was infuriated. Did he have any grace at all for this other man? He had no grace, yet David's sin was so much worse. Galatians 6 Verse 1 would actually tell us, if anyone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should go and rebuild him in a spirit of gentleness. You who are spiritual. It does not say if someone is caught in sin, those of you who are the worst sinners will cut him the most slack, so you should go rebuild him. It says you who are spiritual. So that's true of us. If any of us come face to face with our sin, we don't want to seek out the sinners to give us grace, but the righteous who have the biggest ability, the most ability to give us the grace and mercy we need. And Jesus has that to the utmost. Jesus has the most ability to give us grace. Based on Jesus's priesthood, based on his, for one, that he did the job with finality and this relationship that was broken was completely healed by his priesthood and based on the idea that he can sympathize with us more than anyone. And we're given a challenge. We're given a warning. In chapter four, verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Confidently draw near. And no one shows us this better than Peter, Jesus' disciple. Peter gives us a snapshot of what it looks like to draw near to Jesus confidently, and he gives us a snapshot of how to not do it. Uh, And so let's look at that one first. Peter meets Jesus in Luke chapter 5. And Peter is out fishing. Peter's out fishing all night long and Peter can't catch anything. And he's, he has an empty net, an empty boat. And then Jesus is, is by the shore and Jesus yells out to Peter, throw your net on the other side of the boat. So Peter listens, he throws his net on the other side of the boat and he can't even haul in the full net of fish. It's filling up the boats. And as the boats are overflowing, Peter looks at that and realizes who Jesus is. And we read his reaction in Luke 5, verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he saw the boats full of fish. He fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Depart from me. That's Peter's first reaction. 
Peter's first reaction is, I don't deserve to be here. I shouldn't be with you. Based on my sinfulness and you being who you say you are, this doesn't work. I need to run away. That's Peter's first reaction. And I think too many of us are stuck here. When we realize our sinfulness and we realize who Jesus is, and we're confronted with that, our first reaction is not to think of Jesus as a high priest. It is to run away. It is at least to hesitate. It's to think not yet. We're stuck in not yet. I, I shouldn't go to Jesus yet. I'll wait to church, till church to pray. I'll wait till later when I'm in a quiet place and calm down. I'll wait till I can get right before I draw near to Jesus. And that's where Peter was. Peter's story doesn't end here. Peter spends three years with Jesus. And we can pick back up with him in John 21. But it's a very different situation in John 21. Because after Peter spent three years with Jesus, when Jesus was arrested and crucified, what did Peter do? Peter denied knowing Jesus three separate times. He betrays Jesus. And that is the sequence of events. That's what happens. Uh, Peter is with Jesus for three years. And then he betrays Jesus. And then Jesus dies. That's the last thing that Peter did before Jesus' death. And a couple days later, Peter still thinks Jesus is dead. And Peter's out fishing again. And in John 21, Peter's out fishing all night. And again, he can't catch anything. He's got another empty net. And someone walks up on the shore. I can't tell who he is. And this guy who's on the shore yells out, throw your net on the other side. So Peter throws his net on the other side of the boat and he hauls in a full net of fish. The boat can't even contain it. And you can imagine being in that position where the dots are connecting in Peter's mind. This is Jesus. And it would take me half a second to realize, oh no, right before he died, I denied him three times. That is the last thing that happened. And there he is standing in front of me, resurrected, proven to be who he said he was. In that, in that second, my reaction would probably be shame and I would start rowing away as quick as possible. But apparently, I don't know Jesus as well as Peter does. Because his reaction is very different. John 21, verse seven, it says, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John. John therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. That's Jesus standing on the shore. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea and he swam towards Jesus. He threw himself. Does it sound like he hesitated? Or does that sound confident? Let me suggest to you that if we really knew Jesus, we would throw ourselves at him in confidence. Let me suggest to you that if you think of Jesus and what you feel is shame when you think of Jesus, maybe you need to get to know Jesus better. If when you think of Jesus, you feel shame, Peter would tell us, we don't know Jesus well enough. Could it be that God, who is our high priest, can sympathize us with us the most and we could be so convinced that what we will receive from Jesus is grace that we throw ourselves at him or put a little better that we will draw near with confidence to his throne of grace. 
That's the reality of who Jesus is. We can take a lesson from Peter. But the, the, the reality is that we all have moments where we're tempted to do the opposite. And whether it's we're hesitating to go to God because we don't feel ready or we feel like we don't deserve it and this depart from me feeling comes up, there are those moments throughout our normal days. So our job this week is to think of those. Be aware of those. And we're actually going to take some time right now, just all in this room, we want to do this before we even leave this place, to think through, be introspective, and pray quietly with ourselves. What are these moments? What are these circumstances where I'm tempted to draw away from Jesus instead of drawing near to him? Let's think of those moments and let's commit together to bring them to Jesus confidently. He has the grace, he has the mercy to help us in time of need. Let's take a couple minutes together right now and pray. So Jesus, we draw near to you now. Since we have you as our great high priest who's passed through the heavens, you're Jesus, the son of God. Help us stay committed to our confession in you. We know that we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us, but we know that you in every respect have been tempted as we are, but you didn't sin. So therefore, Jesus, we pray that we can draw near to you with confidence, draw near to your throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Amen.